Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. Take your Bibles and turn to 2 Peter as we're getting so close here to the end of this book. We've been working through it since since January and we've got probably a week or two depending on how it all comes up near the end. But I'm excited about it. I'm excited about coming to the close. It's been a great book. The question we have as we look about do not overlook in 2 Peter chapter 3, 8 through 10 is if Jesus is coming again, if Jesus is coming again, if God is going to judge the wicked, then why is it taking so long? Where is God? Where is he? We've been waiting for a long time. That's the question that's being used here in this chapter 3, the question that Peter is trying to answer. As you may recall, in last week, Paul or Peter is is now discussing or talking about the distorted theology of the false teachers. And Peter continues to rebut them as he addresses the third objection of the false teachers. The first one you might recall is that you apostles made up the teaching of the last judgment of Jesus returning again to control and manipulate people. You made it all up. So Peter took some time. To share with them the untruth of that. The second objection of the false teachers was, if Christ is not returning, if there is no judgment, then just live life the way you want. That was Second Peter chapter 2. Enjoy life. There is no judgment. There, there is no reason why you cannot enjoy the passions of the flesh. And that led us then to chapter 3 and the third objection in which there is not a day of judgment, or excuse me, if Jesus is coming back, then where is he? Life continues to go along day by day. God does not intervene in the world and in the affairs of man. And through ridicule and disappointment, the false teachers have been manipulating these believers in the church to join them in their distorted theology. Peter lists three facts to counter that, as we saw last week. He said God does intervene. He intervened in creation. He intervened at the flood. And as we're going to see as, as he opens up in this passage, God will intervene in the future, in the final day of judgment. Peter is commanding these believers here not to make the same mistake as the false teachers did in overlooking spiritual truths of the facts of Scripture. And I believe that's very important even for us today, especially in the view of many pastors and churches and church leaders today. Just this past week, one uh, reporter from the Christian Post wrote of one influential pastor from one of the largest churches in America who taught out of a conference attended by thousands of pastors and church leaders, who taught that church unity is more important than theological correctness. Once again, this influential pastor said that church unity is more important than theological correctness. Now, he writes that this passage 
or this pastor argued that oneness in faith was more important than being theological correct, adding that he believed that when Christians of various denominations get to heaven, we will discover that when it comes to theology, we were all wrong about something. Well, I believe that's true as well. We will not get everything right, but to discount theology or right doctrine or correct doctrine because of this is a very grave error. The pastor goes on to state, we're by using the example of the apostles and the Jerusalem Council of Acts chapter 15. He said the early church was willing to make theological and cultural concessions for the sake of unity. And so should you and so should I. What this pastor states is powerful and very compelling, especially in a world that finds itself living in a world that's hostile to our faith. But we need churches to unite against this type of encroachment of secular ideas and norms and behaviors who are infiltrating the pews and the pulpits. However, we cannot unite and unite unless we know and understand the truth. Unfortunately, the error of the age seems to induce that the church to unite in outrage over secular philosophy, to unite in outrage over public policy or political policy and over cultural behaviors or over pet social justice issues and wars. However, rather than on our unity as adopted as children of God, that's what they want us to be unified in. But Peter wrote in his first letter, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. See, there's something about God's people. We unite on that issue. Once he says we were not a people, but now we are a people. Once we had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Yes, the psalmist sings, Behold how good and pleasant it is for my people, for brothers, to dwell in unity. But let us not fall into the trap of believing that right theology and unity are at opposite ends, that we cannot have both. Scripture teaches us that we are to have both. Good theology, though, leads to unity. Whereas unity without right theology is no unity at all. We unite against things that are not truly uniting. That is why Peter writes for these elect exiles of Asia Minor to not be persuaded by the distorted theology of the false teachers. In today's passage, Peter moves from exposing the willful ignorance of the false teachers to reminding his readers of the true, pure doctrine of who God is. So with that, let's read 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8-10. through 10. Peter writes, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but he's patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So Father, I pray that you'd open up our hearts and minds to your truth today. Let us see the importance and the relevancy of your word, the importance of, of true doctrine, of, of your revelation to us. Let us not overlook your truth. 
For Father, in your truth, we can be unified as you prayed, sanctify them in your truth. So Father, we join together. Let us just calm our hearts and our minds and spirit to put away those things that may be uh, tearing us down, that may be distracting us, put them down here. Father, so that you may lift them up and may your Holy Spirit do its work. We praise in Christ's name. Amen. Through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Peter reveals several facts here about God in this passage. Now, there's always been two views of history throughout history, throughout, throughout time of the world, men and gods. Men have a philosophy of the world, but then we have the one God. Peter clearly lays out four traits of God that the believer must hold on to combat this distorted theology that comes from false teachers. Peter commands them not to make the same mistake as the false teachers and overlook these facts of Scripture. So I want to share with you four traits that we see here that God reveals in his passage. The first one is found in that first verse. And that's where we see that God is transcendent over his creation. God is transcended over his creation. Look at that. With the Lord one day is as a thousand years. Do not overlook this one fact, brothers, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The transcendence of God means that he exists outside of space and time and that he exists above and independent from them. This means that God is timeless, meaning that God does not experience a succession of moments that you and I do. If you look at your screen, Wayne Grumman writes of eternity and the transcendence of God. He says that God has no beginning and no end or succession of moments in his own being and that he sees all time, all, excuse me, he sees all times equally vividly. Yet God sees events in times and he acts in times. I know that can be confusing. I'm going to tell you that I'm not going to leave you much more with more information than that. But understand that God is above us. He is transcendent. He is eternal. The mistake of the false teachers is misunderstanding the essence and who God is. He is not like us. He is not bound by time as you and I are. Theologian Tom Schreiner notes that the lives of human beings are short and final, but God does not weaken or fail with the passage of time. The false teachers may question the promises of God by asking, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. In doing so, they are trying to manipulate the, the, the believers with ridicule and disappointment trying to sow doubt into their minds, trying to persuade and to seduce them in immoral behavior. Instead, these false teachers only expose their own ignorance of Scripture and ignorance of the very character and essence of God. You see, through Scripture, God reveals that God has no beginning and no end. In Revelation, Jesus says, I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. Scripture also reveals that God does see all time equally vividly. In other words, it doesn't dim. As you and I think of the past, it's dim. There may be things that we have forgotten. But see, God sees all things equally vivid as if it was the present. In Isaiah 46, God declared, I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish my purpose. He sees the beginning and the end and the presence all vividly in the same. 
And that though, and also it tells us, Scripture reveals that though he is outside of time and space, he is not bound by it. He still comes and intervenes in time. In Hebrews chapter 11, he tells us that Jesus, or chapter 1, he tells us that, that Jesus is the radiance and the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. But it goes on and tells us that Jesus, at very now at this time, upholds the universe by the word of his power. You and I would do well to take the commands of God and Isaiah seriously. As you look here on the monitor, where Isaiah says, or God says to Isaiah, remember this and stand firm. Recall to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. Peter is doing here what God did. Remember. Recall. Let me bring into remembrance who God is. And I have to tell you, we have to do that today ourselves. So many of us, we go through life, we go through our, our, our busy schedules, our, our work schedules, our life schedules, and all the things that we do. And many times we forget who God is. It's important for us to remember, to recall, to remind ourselves of who God is. That's the antidote to false theology and distorted theology, is to remember who God is. Peter is reminding the believers of the essence of God. You see, if you and I get God wrong, it is easy to fall for distorted theology, for false teaching. To combat false teaching, you and I must understand who God is. Peter goes on then to remind them of the second truth. Not only is God transcendent, but number two, God is faithful to his promises. Do not forget God is faithful to his promises. Look at verse 9. Peter writes that the Lord is not slow to fulfill his what? His promises as some count slowness. The false teachers are adopting the strategy of Elijah, the prophet of God. Take your Bibles and turn to 1 Kings, if you would. 1 Kings chapter 18. The false teachers adopted the strategy of Elijah, the prophet of God, in his great contest with the false prophets of Baal. You might recall in that time that King Ahab and Jezebel, Queen Jezebel, his wife, had 450 or actually more than that, prophets of Baal. And in it, that's who they were worshiping. And they were threatening others to who would worship God. And Elijah is almost down at his ropes. And he finally decides to do this great cosmic battle with the prophets of Baal. And in 1 Kings chapter 18, starting verse 20, and we're going to read a a larger portion of scripture here. And again, if you don't have a Bible, we'd like to get one in your hands. Please see Dustin. We'd love to give you one that you can bring with you and take home and read. In verse 20 of chapter 18, so Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and he gathered together the prophets at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and he said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? Very similar to what's going on here in 2 Peter. If the Lord is God, then follow him. But if Baal didn't follow him, and the people did not answer him a word. This is very similar to what the false teachers are doing. Where is God? Where is the promise of his coming? All things happen as they are. Why are you following the apostles? Just follow us. You'll enjoy life. You'll have more fun. Look at verse 22. Then Elijah said to the prophet, I, even I, am only left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. 
Let two bulls be given to us and let them choose one bull for themselves. We'll cut it into pieces. We'll lay it in the wood, but put no fire on it. And I will pair the other bull. I'll lay it on the wood and I'll do the exact same thing. Verse 24, and you call upon the name of your God and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. So there's the cosmic. We'll do this and we'll see who God answers. Elijah then said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourself one bull, prepare it first for you or many, call upon the name of your God, but put no fire on it. Verse 26, and they took the bull that was given them, they prepared, they called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon. O Baal, answer us, they cried, but there was no voice, no one answered, and they limped around the altar that they had made. And verse 27 is where I want to get to. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he is musing or he's relieving himself or he is on a journey or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. Where is your God? Maybe he's in the commode. Maybe he's on a journey. Maybe he's just amusing himself. Where is your God? And they cried aloud and they cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. Verse 20. And as midday had passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered no one paid attention. These false teachers were ridiculing the believers with the same strategy. Where is your God? You expected him to come, but he's not there. The apostles told you that they saw Jesus rising up in the air and the angels told him that he would come in like way. But where is he? Your apostles have told you that they were to go into all the world and Jesus would be with them, but where is he? Where is your God? You can imagine these believers were probably very much like the prophets of Baal. No answer. Flabbergasted. Ridiculed. Disappointed. Maybe even now the seed of doubt is coming to mind. Where is our God? Maybe you too, here we are 2,000 years, and that, that question still rings through. How does, where is the coming of the Lord? Is he coming back? The world today still continues to mock us, using the very words of the apostles and of the spirit of Scripture to cause us to dis be disappointed. Look, life continues as it always has. Just enjoy life is the mantra of the false teachers. But Peter strikes to the heart of this ridicule and to this disappointment by stating that rather than loitering or unpunctuality or indifference, God works on different principles than we do. In other words, they still do not understand who God is. You see, God told the prophet Isaiah that my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. The implication of verse 9 that is that God is not slow or lazy or disinterested. 
Jesus himself taught that there would be a delay between his coming in meekness and his second coming with power to usher in the kingdom of God. Jesus' point was not to be impatient, not to doubt him, but to be alert and ready for that day. Once we understand the character of God, that he is faithful to his promises, you and I can trust him even when his promises are delayed. Some of you today are praying for healing. Maybe it's physical healing. Maybe it's a mental or emotional or relational or financial. And you're saying, where is God? Let me share with you today. You need to understand that our God is faithful. Amen? He is faithful. Your answer may not be right now. But your answer is promised. He is faithful in his promises. Once we understand him, we can trust him. The third revelation that Paul or Peter reminds them of is the purposes of God's slowness. Why is God slow? It does seem like he's not ready to fulfill it, but yet it's not that he's not ready to fulfill it, but he has a purpose in his slowness, in his patience, in his delay. So God's purpose of God's slowness in fulfilling his return is found in our third point as we look at God, that God is patient towards his children. Look at the second part of verse 9. But God is patient towards you, not wishing any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Peter explains that God's reason or the reason for God's delay is a patient desire for his people to respond to his call to repent. Yes, God is coming to judge the world for its wickedness and he's coming to rescue the godly. Peter has just laid that out for us in this letter. But yet God is also patiently giving time for his flock to be gathered to him. Turn, if you would, please, to John chapter 10. For this patience is demonstrated in the gospel as God lovingly chooses to redeem those that are lost. In John chapter 9, or 10, excuse me, John chapter 10, looking at verse 9, we get a beautiful picture of God as the good shepherd. But you also see the contrast of the wolves, the, the false teachers. In John chapter 10, join with me in verse 9. Where Jesus says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. That's refreshment. That's safety. That's joy. But look at verse 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But I come that I may have, that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am a good shepherd, or the good shepherd, I should say. The good shepherd lays down his life for sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, he sees the wolf coming and he leaves the sheep and he flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. In verse 13, he flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. So you see the difference between the good shepherd and those that are the wolves, those that are the false teachers. But in verse 16, here's his promise. Here's his declaration. 
and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice so that there will be one flock, one shepherd. There's the unity. There's the unity that we desire. And in, in our adult core class, we don't have it next week, but I encourage you to join with us as we're looking at missions. And what we're seeing here is Jesus gathering his flock from every tribe and every nation and every tongue. And that's why missions is so important for God is calling forth. He is patiently waiting, calling peace children to repent and come to him. So once we see first, we see God is patient as he's gathering his people. But also secondly, God's patience is demonstrated in his allowance of rebellion and blasphemy and murder against his holy name. You and I must understand that God endures much Hatred from his creation. Look on the monitor at Joel, Joel chapter 2. The prophet writes, The Lord utters his voice before his army. For his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful. But now look at it again. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, he calls out, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. That's repentance. And rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, he cries out, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. God demonstrates his patience, not only in waiting for his sheep to come in, but also as he endures those who rebel against him. Against the false teachers, again, they mistake God's patience and call to repentance as an inaction and a call to ignore his commands. However, Paul warns the church of Rome, do not presume on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience. Do you not know that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? The very fact that you are in rebellion against God and he has not snapped his fingers and just torn you asunder and thrown you in hell is God's patience towards you. He says, but because of your hard and intended hearts, you are storing up wrath for yourself. And on the day when wrath, of day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed, he will render to each one according to his works. He is laying bare here through the writings of Paul that the false teacher's theology is distorted. It is wrong. It is sinful. He says, those who by patient and well-doing seek for glory and honor and mentality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there'll be wrath and fury. There is part of the gospel there. God is patient, so he's calling others to repent of their sins so they may come in and turn towards him. You may ask, why does not God intervene now? Well, God warns before judgment. God warns before judgment. The Old Testament is full of God warning people, cities and kings and nations to repent before he sends his judgment. You may recall that Noah preached for 120 years before the flood. Repent, for the Lord is going to destroy the world. He sent, a, he sent angels to not only to Abraham, but also to Lot to tell them of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. We see Jonah going to Nineveh. Repent, for the Lord is going to destroy this city. 
The kings of Israel, as the prophets come and say to them, repent and turn back to the king of Israel. But they did not. And even today to the nations of the world, see who the true king is. But judgment does come. The third reason for God's purpose and patience is to clearly demonstrate that man is incapable of saving himself. Listen to this, no matter what man does or society attempts, they will never be able to cure the sickness of sin. They will never be able to cancel the debt we have against God and they will never be able to save themselves. Just as in the Old Testament, the day of the Lord was warnings, were, the day of the Lord warnings were to encourage Israel to, Israel to repent and live godly lives. It's meant today to bring us back to repentance. Perishing means eternal judgment. Repentance is necessary for eternal life. A few things to remember about God's promises and his patience towards us is that God is outside time. He does not set calendar dates, but he sets scriptural time. Words such as until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled or in the gospel, the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the world and then the end will come. God does not set calendar dates, but as Martin Lloyd-Jones writes, what determines God's intervention in the world, in the time process that you and I live in, is the matter of moral conditions. It's the matter of the heart. And so I would just challenge you that God is looking for your heart to turn towards him before answering those promises, fulfilling those promises. But one might ask, is God not concerned that this world is decaying? That the society is in full rebellion against him? That immorality is gaining a, foot, a greater foothold? That wickedness is rampant? That Christians are suffering? Even this week, more Christians were persecuted. Is God not concerned with that? What about his patience there? What about his judgment there? Well, of course. That leads us to the fourth revelation as we see here as Peter writes. The fourth revelation Peter gives us can be summed up in a quote by Martin Lloyd-Jones, a British preacher who proclaimed, though God is above time, he does act in time. And so God is concerned for his people. Hence why the fourth fact that we see here is that God is sovereign over his creation and that there will be a day when he will interact in a mighty way in time. Look at verse 10. And here's that day of the Lord. The day of the Lord, you see it in the Old Testament, you see it in the New Testament. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. In this verse, Peter reminds his readers that God has appointed a time when he will bring all things into account. The day of the Lord refers to God's judgment and God's salvation. It is the final day when God will, as Pastor MacArthur notes, vindicate his name, destroy his enemies, reveal his glory, destroy the world, and establish his kingdom forever. Peter remembers the teaching of Christ, who warned that it will come when people least expected, thinking that they are safe from all harm. 
In Matthew 24, it's here on the monitor. Jesus warned this when he spoke to his disciples. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For it is in those days before the flood, they were eating, they were drinking, marrying, and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the dark. For 120 years, he's saying, Noah preached, but they ignored him. He called them to repentance. They just dismissed him. He called them to, to worship the Almighty, but they just pleasured themselves as time went in. And they were unaware in verse 39 until the flood came and swept them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man. It will come quickly and it will come unexplicably to these people. They will not heed the warnings of God. But for the Christian, look what he says in verse 42. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this. That if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not let his house be broken into. Therefore, he tells us, you must be ready for the son of man is coming at an hour you do not expect. In other words, be ready, be alert. Do not be seduced into sleep or complacency. For God is a God who is above time. He is faithful. He is patient. He is calling us to repentance. But there will be a day of reckoning. Peter writes that three things will happen. The heavens will pass away. Speaking of the elements of all the world, that's the Greek, uh, Greek word there. It's all the elements, all the atomic and neutrons and molecules. And everything. They will just be dissolved, he says, in flame. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and, and dissolved. Take your, well, I'll take, take your Bibles, if you're very quickly, turn to Isaiah chapter 34. In Isaiah 34, we see this hundreds of years before Christ came. Listen to what God says to Israel here, speaking of that day. In Isaiah 34, he says, Draw near, O nations, to hear, and give attention, O people. Let the earth hear and all that fills it, the world and all that comes from it. Verse 2, For the Lord is enraged against all the nations and furious against all their hosts. He has devoted them to destruction and has given them over for slaughter. Their slain shall be cast out, and the stench of their corpse shall rise. The mountains shall flow with their blood. Talking about a word picture. Verse 4, all the host of heaven shall rot away, and the skies rolled up like a scroll, and all their hosts shall fall as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. What he's saying is one day the heavens will open up a scroll as they are dissolved and something else is going to appear. The earth, number three, all the earth and all the works done in will be exposed, meaning that, that they, he will remove evil. Now, when we look at that, we think of destruction and there is destruction there. But what we're going to see, especially as we get into this next passage next week, is that God is preparing the world, the earth, the heavens and the earth for something so much more wonderful, the new heaven and the new kingdom, something greater. But to do that, he has to get rid of that which is corrupted. 
So God's saying there is going to be a day where all evil will be exposed. The elements will be dissolved. The skies will scroll back like a, or the skies will scroll, roll back like a scroll. Getting that all mixed up there. He says all things will be exposed and something new is coming. Now remember, just give me, give, let me give you back a reminder back. Is that their life is about immoral, living in sexual sins, defiling their flesh. But if you look at 1 Corinthians and also in Galatians, you see that those who do such things as these false teachers who live by the flesh, who live for pleasure, says they will not inherit the kingdom of God. So they will have no place in this new kingdom that God is preparing. So you and I must realize that God is sovereign. These false teachers are wrong. And they're wrong because they overlook the truths of Scripture. We see in this passage that Peter is directing his readers to true, pure theology of Scripture. Remember, understand, and know who God truly is. It is the old battle that's been going on since the beginning of time. The philosophy of man about the world and versus the word of God. Peter has demonstrated that there has always been false teachers since the beginning of time who have been in existence. They have been distorting God's word, rebelling against his authority, shameless in pursuing their pleasures and deceiving people. Yet, they are wrong, they are sinful, sinful they are in rebellion against their creator, and they will be judged. That's what God is reminding the believers then. And I believe he's bringing us to the same thing down the halls of history 2,000 years later. For we have false teachers. We have those who are distorting God. They do not understand God. They are willfully ignorant of the things of God. But yet you and I must hold firm in who God is. He is a God who is outside of time, who cannot be uh, 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 boxed in. He is a God who is faithful, who is desiring those to come to him and to repent. But he's also a God who will judge the wicked, but rescue the godly. Peter does not want his readers to overlook the wonderful truths found in Scripture. He does not want them to adopt the mindset of the false teachers or be persuaded by their distorted theology or seduced by their immoral behavior. In this passage, Peter simply reminds them of who God is. He is transcendent. He does not operate as we would. That you and I can trust God for he is faithful and will fulfill his promises. That God is working today by patiently calling his children while warning the wicked to repent. And that God's solution is that he will exercise his sovereignty by judging the wicked and rescuing the godly. That's the call for the church today. We have many times the same ridicule and manipulation by those who would say, where is this coming? Or where is your God? Some of the other distorted theology and the misuse of God comes in different ways, but we are always under attack. Now, unfortunately, the attack that Peter is writing about is not coming from outside the church, but coming from inside Hence why I share with you, there are pastors today who are teaching and church leaders who are leading people astray. And so what Peter is saying here is that church, you must repudiate this type of teaching. You must stand 
firm in knowing who God is. You're to hold me account in Randy and Dustin and Landon and other churches wherever you may be. Hold leaders to account for the truths found in Scripture. Let me share with you the only successful, effective strategy to combat distorted theology that finds itself inside the church, that theology that dismisses the word of God or attacks the person and character of God is number one, to guard your heart from idolatry. That's why he says flee from the passions of your youth. Flee from the passions of the flesh. You need to guard your heart from the idolatry of making your sin your God, your pleasure, your addiction, your God. Number two, you need to protect your mind from doubt. For that's how they'll go. They'll, they'll ridicule and manipulate you through disappointment to sow seed of doubt of who God is. You need to sanctify yourself in truth. That's why he says be of a sincere mind, a mind that's unmixed with sin. And number three, Commit to living in the Spirit. You and I must do, as Paul or as Peter wrote at the beginning of this letter, pursue godliness and holiness. For that is our call as we patiently endure suffering, waiting for that day when Christ comes to rescue the godly, bringing his righteous rule and bringing true justice that all of us seek. Amen? Let's bow our head and close our eyes. Where's your team if you make your way up? You know, this is a wonderful passage of scripture and you and I must hold dear to it. So as the spirit works, I would ask for you just to ask that, Lord, work in my heart. In what way am I enamored by wrong theology? In what way am I allowing doubt to rise in my heart? In which way am I, am I questioning your character and your person? in your goodness. Expose that in my heart and let me learn from your word. Let me trust in your promises. Would you do so this morning? And may God give you the strength to love him and to follow him. Father, we just love you so much. And I thank you for 2 Peter chapter 3, 8 through 10, just these three verses here. They just reveal so much about you. And Father, I pray that we would be encouraged and that we'd be strengthened by knowing your true self of how you revealed yourself as one who is outside of time, but Father, who intervenes in time to help us in times of need. Let us recognize your faithfulness, not despairing of the wickedness of this world and just the suffering that we endure by sin, but knowing, Lord, that you will fulfill your promises. And until that day, may we stay alert, may we be awake, praying eagerly for that day when you would come to rescue the godly and bring the justice we so desperately desire. We pray that you would strengthen us for this. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.